Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Uncommon Comedy Podcast. I am your host, Brian April. And uh, you can follow us on Facebook at Uncommon Comedy. You can follow us on Instagram at Uncommon Comedy Tour and YouTube at Uncommon Comedy Podcast. Uh, we're going to get right into it today because today's guest is uh, just another legend in the comedy world. If you're a comedian, uh, you should know who this man is. If you're not a comedian, you should know who this man is because he's been on everything. Uh, his list of credits is just, you know, Tonight Show with uh, Johnny Carson, uh, Late Night with David Letterman, Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He was a regular uh, on uh, Married with Children. He's been in uh, Roxanne. He's he's written uh, several books, including um, I Killed, Kicking Through the Ashes. Uh, or not, sorry, Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life as a Stand-Up Comedian. He also was part of another book called I Killed, which is a great read. Um, you're going to learn a lot today, and uh, I'm super, super excited to to have our guest come in. So please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome the one, the only, Mr. Rich Scheidner. Rich, how are you, sir? Hey, good, good, Brian. Good to see you. Yeah, glad, good to have you, man. Um, so thank you again for taking time today. Uh, you know, it's interesting. With with this, I always like to start off talking about a little bit of how uh, my guest comedy have, has impacted me and, and what I really appreciate it. Um, uh, what I appreciate about it, and your story is a little different with uh, with me. Um, I had uh, I learned of your comedy through a show that I did that uh, my uh, former manager Mark Anderson put, had put together, and you had written some material that was used in the show. And so I, uh, for my first exposure to your material, was me actually saying your material in like a play, and I just re remember thinking like, "Wow, this is so good." And then I get to finally work with you and just see you work on stage and just see the the brilliance of your writing and your stage presence and how you can uh, go into the crowd if you want. Your storytelling, it's just amazing. And I absolutely uh, love your work and, and I really appreciate um, you, your style. So, Thanks, Brian. And, uh, you know, Mark Anderson, I mean, how much I miss that guy. I love that guy. I got a picture up on a wall back there in my office. He can't see it. Uh, okay, he was a... Up there, my wall of, of past friends, and um, he just was a great guy. Just, um, I just really loved that guy. Yeah, he was yeah. A, he was a super nice guy, and just had yeah. a, a good heart, and just wanted to give to people. And, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, very unusual in this business, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's uh, let's let's dive into uh, a little bit about you. I mean, you've done everything, you've been everywhere. <laughs> what got you inspired, or what got you started into stand up? I was in law school. In fact, I just uh, I was writing a little bit about that because a friend of mine from law school passed. I was in law school and um, uh, I was always being funny, you know, making people in class laugh and cracking jokes. And and a guy named Howard Vine, another classmate, uh, he uh, he thought I was funny. I thought it was funny. So we needed a third opinion. So he he found a place to take me in January 1977. It was a coffee house a couple blocks from the hotel that I was living and working in. And it was in the basement of a church. It was called Iguana Coffee House. And I went down there to do stand-up for the first time. We didn't know, I don't know, I don't think I was saying I'm going to go do stand-up. I'm just going to go do comedy, perform by myself in front of these people. And it was it was every bit of a disaster as you can imagine. <laughs> you know, I sort of memorized the material. As soon as I got up there, I forgot what I memorized. I managed to strangle out one joke that got one person and go ah! like that that you know reaction where one person starts to laugh and no one follows and they just quit they go ah! oh, oh no, i'm sorry that was not good you're right and uh, that's all i got but it was enough you know because you're going from 
and every stamp comic has to make that transition from making your friends laugh in the moment to um, making strangers laugh on command. And um, I got some sort of reaction from a stranger first time. The person didn't know who I was. And I knew enough instinctively to think that was a big deal. And so I kept going back. I, I just went after it after that. I just went after it. I found that interesting because you always get those people who go, oh, my friends say I'm funny. My friends say I'm funny. They always come up to me. I'm sure they come up to you. And is that basically what, what advice do you kind of say? Like, hey, you know. Well, you, you got to start there. But I've seen people come into comedy and I watch them and I go, whoever laughed with you. I mean, I can see people <laughs> laughing at you, but whoever <laughs> laughed with you. I mean, but you have to start there. And then whether you have the drive to overcome all the failures in the beginning, that's a whole nother matter. And that's, that's what separates person. I think a stand up from just a funny person. I know people who are funnier than 90% of the stand up comedians. I can name them mm -hmm. right now. We're off the top of my head. A man named Cam Melchior. He's a lawyer in Baltimore. I went to college with him. He's funnier than most professional comedians. Never had the desire or drive or need to get up in front of the strangers and make them laugh, you know, for stand up comedy. So um, it, it's a whole different thing, that separation. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you said you went up and got like one one sliver of a, of a laugh and that's enough to, to just kind of keep you going. It's it's really hard. And I always found this interesting about stand-up is stand-up is like the only or one of the few art forms where you have to practice uh, the same way you perform, you know, in front of a live audience. There's no yeah. – yeah. What, like a guitar, you can play at home in the you know in your room and get good at it. But stand up, it's like you have to be out there, live bullets flying type of thing. And it's, it's, there's no laughter. There's no no stand up show. That's what's so funny about these Zoom room stand up shows. I mean, if there's no laughter, there's no stand up show. It's yeah. It, I, I, in fact, I I see no reason why to do it. The only reason <laughs> I did it was the laughter. I wanted to hear that laughter, that music. And then the more you do it, you go, I want more of it. It was I, I was a total junkie. More louder, bigger rooms, more people laughing longer. I mean, every aspect of it is an addiction. So without the laughter, there's no, there's no show. There's no stand-up show. Right. Now you, uh, you started in the seventies, you were saying. And so I, yeah, uh, 77, yeah. 77. And so there's not a lot of stand-up comedy clubs because no, no, I did. I was doing it for a year and a friend of mine in law school, said, you know, there are stand-up comedy clubs in New York City where guys like you, your age, are doing it. And I went, what? And she took me up there, and I went to um, uh, a place called The Improvisation in, in New York City, and uh, The Catch a Rising Star both sold out on a Saturday night. We got into the comic strip, which is uh, was on 2nd Avenue around 78th Street. It's still there. It's still the only one of those three clubs still open. Wow. And I saw a show, and I'm sitting there, you know, on a Saturday night, watching the show thinking I'm funnier. Each comedy that came up, I was like that cocky kind of, yeah, I'm funnier than this guy. No, I'm funnier than this guy. And then one guy comes up and I'm sitting there going, uh-oh, I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> and, and it was young Jerry Seinfeld, you know, and I remember, um, I remember the bits he did that night. I, that's how impactful it was for me. And uh, But I, that I, on the horizon, though, I knew there was a place in New York City where there were people doing it. But there were no comedy clubs all over the country. There weren't any paying comedy clubs other than at 77, there were two paying comedy clubs, both of them in Cal Southern California. The one was the um, the comedy store down in, I think it originally started in Pacific Beach in San Diego and then moved over to La Jolla where it is now. 
And then there was the, the laugh stop, which started in Newport Beach in uh, 77. And then the Comedy Magic Club came across, came along in like 78. So there were no paying comedy clubs anywhere east of the Mississippi. So you just had to find whatever venue, because people, oh. a lot of people say that in the beginning, you know, like, anyway. where do I perform? You know, you know, the thing about open mics is today, I mean, they're, they're problematic for the comics doing it today. That every generation has a different struggle to get to the microphone in front of an audience. But nobody was looking for stand-up comedy back then. And I was getting a lot of work um, when I first started opening up for rock bands. They didn't even know what I was doing when I was walking out there without a guitar in my hand. Uh, most of the time they would introduce me just as please welcome you over to like Rich Scheider. They didn't say comedian or stand-up comedian. I had no credits at all. Um, even, even the places where I go find crowds were in before that, before I was good enough to even get any kind of work were singer songwriter nights. I would jam my way into there. I would, uh, find all, I would find my own gigs. I went to this guy had a pizza parlor around the corner from where I lived and I talked him and let me do stand up in front of you, like four tables. It was mostly takeout. We had like four tables and I talked him and let me do and stand up in front of the people eating pizza in his place. And then, you know, he, he's just this immigrant guy, nice guy, but he's like, I don't know what this guy's doing. Stand in front of these people, harassing them while they're trying to eat their pizza. But I would go anywhere. I didn't care. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a certain type of, uh, dedication and madness you have to have in order to, to put yourself in some of these situations. Um, you, you talked about opening for rock bands. There's a, a story that you have that I absolutely love about opening up for a, a rock band, uh, and not even a rock band, but a punk band. Uh, I was wondering if you can uh, talk about that one. It's sort of a first paying gig. So I'm, I'm doing places uh, around and I'm doing it for, for over a year, you know, and I'd, I'd say three, four nights a week, I'd go out, you know, I was still going to law school and I had a, a job that I was doing, uh, but I'd get out three, four nights a week at some place. And then I was hanging out at this bar called the Child Harold uh, on DuPont Circle in D.C. And it was a live music place. And the bartender was my friend. And he told the owner something about Because I was always in there making jokes and, you know, causing a scene. And he said, you know, the guy, he's doing stand-up comedy now. He's doing comedy. So the owner comes over to me. He's a famous bar owner in D.C. named Bill Hurd. Wild guy. And he said, you know, you want to open up for this band next week? I'll give you like $50. I'm like, Tony's going to pay me to do this? You know, I'm like, $50, right? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the next week I show up and on the marquee out front, it says, from New York City, the Ramones. Now, this is 1978. I don't know anything about punk. I'm still in my kind of long hair, painter bib overalls, Jackson Brown period. And, and I walk in. This place is packed. Now, you know, this is my memory. might have been like, you know, the place only held 100 people anyway. It might have been like 80. But it, it was definitely not my scene. They were all much younger guys, all guys. It seemed like all guys, you know, leather, bare-chested, you know, the punked-up hair, uh, you know, safety pins through the cheek, all this stuff. You know, and I'm the, I get back to the bar, and Bill Hurts laughing. He's going, you're not going to make 15 minutes in front of this crowd. Because you can just feel the testosterone. You can feel the anger. Just like the whole crowd's like, And so I said, yeah, I'm going to make the 15 minutes because I want that $50. To me, it was like a rodeo event. I'm going to be on there to the buzzer games. I didn't care. You know, I already been experiencing that in my little career to that point. I didn't care. He's like, you know, you won't make five minutes. I'll go double or nothing. You don't make five minutes. And I said, I, I'll take it. So uh, I, I don't know if they introduced me. I don't know what the, if they did, 
it was probably the only, only thing the audience heard was, please welcome your opening act, not the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, it wasn't like I come out from behind a curtain or from backstage. It was just in the room, one of those little stages, you know, six inch rise or plywood. I have to walk through the crowd to get there. They are booing me. They are, they are hissing me. That I didn't got to the stage, man. <laughs> like they knew, they instinctively knew I was no good. You know, I get to the stage, and um, I, I just start doing my act. I don't have any kind of improv skills at this point. I have a little fifteen minutes I've cobbled together. I'm, I'm just A to B to C. I start to my act, and they're booing me and. I don't know how long I was into it. Not even a minute, maybe. And one of the guys just takes his mug of beer and shoots his beer at me, and just catches me right in the face with beer. I don't even, I don't even move, man. Of course, I'm jammed in. The drum kit's right behind me, amplifiers, a tiny little stage microphone. You know, I'm just jammed in. I just stand there, hold on to the mic, like like I got hit with ocean spray in the front of a boat. You know, just shake it off. Anyway, my mom said, right back to my ass. Right <laughs> no reaction other than I'm. Spit out some beer and go right back to my act. And the guy next to me says, "Well, he didn't move on this beer. Let's see what he does with this one." And so he hit me with a beer. And pretty soon, everybody's into the act. You know, it's like they got real organized. It was like a deli; they were taking numbers. You know, everybody was. It was very. <laughs> my friend said the bartender says the most schizophrenic show he'd ever seen in his life. That somebody would hit me with a beer, the whole crowd would cheer. I start talking, they'd start booing. It was just, "Hey, boo! Yay, boo!" And um, it didn't take long for Bill Hurd to like, you know, he's like, he's like, this is not good. All the beers flying at the stage, amplifiers there, microphones. So he's waving the money back. All right, come get your money. Come on. <laughs> so I go off. I don't, I don't know what I, I don't think I said, thank you. Good night. I just, I had no sense. I just left. I get, there was no dressing room. There was just the kitchen behind the bar. And I go back to, I'm soaked with beer head to toe, just soaked. I get backstage. Ramones are standing there in the kitchen waiting to go on. Just like three, four guys, you know, and you, leather and guitars and long hair and i go back there i'm toweling beer off and one of ramones looks at me and goes cool act man <laughs> <laughs> so you know when the book i killed came out mark schiff and i put this book i killed out it was all road stories and i put that a version a version of that ramone story um it, it's changed because a friend of mine who was there filled me in on some of the details that i'd forgotten but so we put a version of the ramone story in there and uh, uh, a guy, uh, a critic from Washington Post said uh, he was a music critic back then, and he remembered no opening act for Ramones at night. He was there at the Child Herald, and he disputed my story. And so the guy who um, sort of tipped me off that that's why we didn't get any review in the Washington Post for our book, I, I sent him an email. I said, look, man, I, 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 there's a guy's phone number right here. My friend, you can call him up, man. Uh, he was there. And uh, I did it. I'm telling you, I did it. And he said, well, I'm sorry, man. The guy guy won't change. And then a year later, right after the book, now for like a year, this guy contacts me. He says, hey, I got to apologize to you. You know, um, I thought there was no opening act. And somehow this thing came up, conversation with my wife the other night. And she says, oh, no, don't you remember? There was a disturbance to the front of the stage. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like the title of my, of my next tour, a disturbance at the front of the stage. If I ever did tours, it would be a disturbance at the front of the stage. That was always my favorite description of my act back then. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and the, the bartenders must have been happy because you got a free round, you know, an extra round of drinks for everyone to buy. <laughs> they were selling beer that night. Yeah, absolutely. So was that your worst show ever? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can top that. Listen, back then, I mean, 
And this is this happened around the same time. You know, they were just going everywhere to go perform. And, and my friend, uh, the guy Howard Vine, who took me up, he sort of became my sort of like you know uh, unofficial agent, so to speak. He would just find places for me to perform. So one night he says, "Hey, um, there's a place called the Gay Cabaret down in Southwest Washington, and uh, they have a they have a talent night. And so you can go in there and perform that once a week. They do a talent night." Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it was. I said, all right, let's go. Now we we're clueless, man. This is 1977, whatever it was. We, you know, we we don't we think gay means like gay cabaret, means like the gay 90s, you know, or or the Flintstones gay old time. We're not we're not right. really catching it. This is nobody was out of the closet in, in 1977. The closet was packed. You know what I'm saying? It was <laughs> right. the, they, they were only forced up by overcrowding. And so we get there and it's a gay nightclub. But the guy was really nice. He said, look, fellas, you know, we'd welcome you normally. We'd welcome you to come perform anything anybody wants to do or is okay. But um, tonight, once a month, we do ladies' night. Now, again, we're so clueless. We go, ladies' night? That's fantastic. We'll be the only guys there. We're going to do great, man. We don't, again, we don't realize what's happening. We're two idiots. I go on stage. He was all right, man. He put me on. It's lesbians. It's a bunch. It's 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 packed with lesbians, and I'm like the you know, the, the last thing they want to see. I go up there and I'm doing my knucklehead 15 minutes of of memorized stupidity, and they're just staring at me. And I, I, at one point early on, I just blurted out some. I guess I'm your worst nightmare, and they laughed. Now, you know, with a little experience, if you understand what's going on. Take that laugh as your and thank you. Good night. Right? Yep. Accidental or not. And I'm not going to get another laugh, but I don't know. I'm clueless. I just go, oh, they must want me to do more. You know, I'm, I'm just <laughs> so I start doing my act again, right back then. You know, my dad said, right back to my little act. And this woman in the front stands up, she walks up on the stage, takes you by the elbow, and just leads me off. It was just just leads me out of the room and shuts the door behind me. It was a total mercy killing. It was, it was not a word was said. I didn't hear any applause when I, when the door shut, they just went back to their show and, and removed the nuisance. That's hysterical. Now I got a lot of bombings and, and, and horror stories, private shows at houses and parties. And, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that I did and anything to get a, uh, uh, try to do my comedy in front of strangers. That was the that was it. If there was a group of strangers gathered, uh, I would do it. So, how do you when when you have experiences like that, just getting beer bath after beer bath, or uh, walked off the stage, you know, and booed off, and all of that sort of stuff? How do you mentally um, how do you mentally cope with that? Because in between that, I was I was getting laughs, and and I started noticing things like like say these. There were a lot of these singer-songwriter night, singer-songwriter nights in Washington D.C. in the in the late seventies, especially. You know, everybody was trying to be a Jackson Brown or James Taylor, or Bonnie Raitt or, or you know Joni Mitchell, whatever. And um, so I'd go to these things and I'd sign up. When I first started doing it, the other, they were all musicians. I'd be the only comic on stage. In fact, the only other guy I ran across back then was Lewis Black. You know, Lewis Black. He was also in Washington D.C. and I ran across him at these. Every, almost every bar had a singer songwriter night. Every bar, every pub in Washington D.C. So I, I, I see him once in a while places, and that's the only other guy that I I met that was doing it like that. And, and I noticed, you know, I I started getting 
on at more and more of these places. Then say I was doing so many or I had to work one night or I had to study for something one night and I didn't show up. I'd come back the next week and they'd all, all the musicians be like, hey, where were you, man? We missed you. Man, where were you? I go, ah, I'm starting to, I'm starting to get something. I'm starting to get some laughs, steady laughs. I'm starting to, you know, it's all about R&R. &R. I used to call it reputation and repetition. And that's what I called it, R&R. &R. I just got to get a reputation by repeating myself all the time and going on these places all the time. And that's what was happening. So in between those horror shows, there were a lot of good shows or at least bringing better. And, and I was trying new jokes all the time and, you know, the percentages, whatever it is, but there's nothing that I enjoy more than the, the smell of a new joke and new right. jokes. smell. you know, that's, that's the best. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of the things I've always found too is, you know, people go, how do you deal with all the bombing or whatever? And it's, you just need that one show where you go, yep. And that'll, that'll make up for the 99 horrible shows before it. And, and it there's only one way to get a bad show out of your mouth is a new one, a good mm -hmm. one. Yep. That's, that's, that's the beauty of like, say when I was living in New York city back in, in, I moved there in 79, there were three, there were three really good shows showcase clubs i said catch comic strip and the improv and then there were a bunch of other little rooms and paying gigs on, in jersey and long island and and so if you had a bad one you'd run across town to another room and and get on stage in front of people you could easily make it up yeah the, the retribution set as i call it <laughs> retribution <laughs> set i like that like uh, so how long did it take for things to start to really click for you? How much were you getting up, you know, a week and, and, and about that time, you know, how much time did it take for it to start? Well, to, you know, I, 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 just, I decided to, to forego the law career and go full on comedy in 79. And then I was really doing it all the time. My friend, Joe Mullen, who was a guy who, who we swapped apartments. I took his New York apartment. He took my DC apartment. And uh, he said, you know, he, he saw me when I first started. He was a friend of mine from high school and a musician. And, and he said, you know, I saw the struggles. And, he, he, you know, he was there a lot of times. He said, I came back like after six months in New York. He said, oh, my God, he's got it. You know, wow. he said, you're funny like you were funny in high school. You know, you have to knock away a lot of the stuff. I knock away a lot of my self-consciousness. I knock away. Uh, influences from other comics. You know, when you first, at least when I first started out, I was, you know, my favorite comics were Robert Klein and Richard Pryor and George Carlin. And, you know, I sounded like a, a Jewish black hippie up there. You know, I mean, sometimes I was a little confused. I had like Art Carney mannerisms. And so whenever you find yourself doing something, uh, you kind of drop it, you know, don't do that. That's a Robert Klein move or that's a Carlin kind of take, you know? And so, you start knocking away all the influences, start stripping down to because everybody just needs to get back to who they were when they first realized they were funny and what, what they were doing when they were younger. Really basic is all you're doing. The same mm -hmm. attitude, the same sort of performance thing. Just a hyper version of that, I think. Yeah. Um, so when you're you're starting out, I I always love love this question, what's the best piece of advice you got? But you were also starting out in a time when you know, it's kind of the wild west of comedy. Uh, you know, it wasn't like <laughs> now word. if someone yeah. starts out, you have someone yeah. like you that someone can go to and go, Hey, do you have any advice? So yeah. Was, did you yeah, have any my, my advice is get on stage every chance you get all the time. The only way to get better is stage time. We talked about that. You can't get better any other way. So, I mean, I, I was always going on stage, like say, and, and I've noticed this was happening, what happened. And I, I knew it then. I'd go do a Jersey gig. We'd leave the improv in New York City, go out to do a Jersey gig. You know, we paid 
$55, a lot of money to us then. My rent was only $110 a month in New York at that time. So $55 is a lot of money. And we come back. Now, we come back to the improv bar. We leave from that bar. The guys would pick us up, take us out, come back. Three comics. We come back in the bar. The other two comics go to the bar and they sit down. They're done for the night. They got $55 in their pocket. They're going to get free beers at the improv. They're done. I go right up to the manager. All right, who's next? Who's on next? Can I get on? When can I get on? Yeah, and then I'm calling across town. Who's on? Can I get on if I come over to the strip? Can I get on if I come over to catch? Where can I want two more sets, three more sets that night? Mm. I'm not satisfied with the one Jersey gig that we did. It didn't matter how satisfying it was. I always wanted more because I knew it that be better. And then I'm going to try new jokes every time. Every time you come on. If you're not, it's not a paid gig, a highly paid gig, or it's not a, uh, an audition. You should be trying new jokes. If you're not trying something new, you're wasting your time up there. Just doing the same old stuff for no money. That's ridiculous. But on a paid show, you want to give them your ace, you know. You got to give them. You got to give them yeah. their money. You got. You may slip in a new one there yeah. in a paid show, and that's going to going to trip you up in the middle. But I'm just saying, when when I'm doing it, I'm I'm always doing new material, and it paid off for me because when that Wild West opened up in 1980, when the club started popping, like I mean, they were popping, man. They were popping, like you know, bam, 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 all over the country, and comics came out the headline. Some of those comics, they you can get away with. Being a 20-minute act in the city, you could do that today in L.A. or New York. You could just do the same 20 over and over and over, I guess, maybe. You could back then. Mm -hmm. But I came out with a ton of material. I was constantly building that act. I learned that from Seinfeld when I first started watching guys like Larry Miller, who's constantly doing new material. They were inspiring me. And it's like you got to build that act. you got to build it up, build it up. So when the, those clubs open – Pittsburgh and Cleveland and all these places were going out to Detroit, going to South to Atlanta. When all these clubs started opening, I was a headliner. They knew they could throw me up there and I'm going to give them that hour. And in fact, back then, this is before, again, the mothers against drunk driving changed the, the drunk driving ethos. Well done, by the way, back in the eighties. But before that, in the, in the early eighties, it, it was like the club owners were selling as many drinks as they could to these people. So they loved, they had packed audiences. It was hot. It was hot. The place was packed. It was like, who can sell the most drinks? So they'd let you go long. Two hour, three hour shows were the, the norm. Mm. Norm, no show ended less than two hours that I can remember. And comics were trying to see how long they could go. I'd go in the club and go, who's got the record here? They go, oh, Glenn Hirsch, an hour and 45. I go, I'm breaking that tonight. <laughs> You know, you can you could tell everybody it's just, you know, don't don't anybody think they're getting home early tonight. Wow. That was, that was the way it was. Wow. It's so, yeah, it's such a different uh, scene than yeah. it is, is now, yeah. especially now. Everything's like 90 minutes and, and out. No, no, and, yeah. By the, look, I was in the clubs by the late 80s. Yeah. Everything had changed. You know, it was like they're dropping a check. You you had the check spot. There was, there was no really worry about the check spot back when I first started. But then the check spot became a problem. Because your headliners up there and, you know, 30 minutes into your act, they're dropping the checks and you got to kind of, you know, tread water while they're, while they're paying their bills and then try to close strong for that last 15. But they want you, they don't want you off on stage more than an hour headlining. Yeah. Ideally 45 minutes. That, that changed. Well, so you, you talk about having a lot of uh, material and, and writing and, and, you know, constantly working the material. What is your writing process like for stand up? Well, I think a lot of comics I knew back then, we were always taking notes. You had notes, notes, notes. But, you know, you, you know, I found that you couldn't really 
sometimes a joke landed on its feet, set up, punchline, worded perfectly. That's rare. Normally, you come up with a concept. You're looking for the punchline to it. You might have a punchline. You got to work the setup correctly. You know, you the, the, the transition from the page to the stage is everything for the joke. You know, what looks good on the page might not work on the stage. And since this is a performance art we're doing, you need it to work on a on the stage. It doesn't matter how good it looks written, you know. That's why I laugh. People go like Facebook, you know, you just go, okay, well, that, that, that's a pun or whatever it is. It'll right. work okay on Facebook, get you a bunch of likes. But is it going to snap that whip on stage, man? Is it going to make those people go, oh, <laughs> and more with laughter live. So they got to work. You got to massage it, get it timed up perfectly. You know, that's the timing. That timing has to be worked out in front of a live audience. The only way to do it. So I wrote every day, worked every day. I learned that again, I keep mentioning his name, but he was the model for me in terms of a lot of the, the work ethic and the craftsmanship is Jerry Seinfeld. said, so you write every day. And I found it to be true. I wrote every day. And at night I might not have the punchline at daytime, but I had, worked on it. I focused on the material. So I went on stage that night. I, I'm trying to set up that I saw that day on the page and thinking about it. I'm trying to set up. And in my mind, the ego, whatever provides the punchline live that night and mm. it works. And then it locks in. That's the way I got to do this. Now the next night I got to do this kind of the same way. You know, you, you trick them how you're coming about it, but you know, you, you, you are kind of locked in on a set up punchline once you sort of set it. Well, and then the the nice thing too is if you're you're getting two three sets in a night, you know you're you're able to tweak and adjust and edit and try to get that in. So by the end of the night, what didn't work in the first show is yeah. you got it dialed in, you know, by the end. And if you repeat that, we're doing, just, we're doing yeah, we're doing ten shows a week in these clubs. So that means I'm on stage ten hours, at least ten hours, fifteen hours, sometimes more a week. Wow. Right in front of the crowds, and it's 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 not a beat up audience. It's it's you know I got you know a fifteen minute act and a twenty minute act or twenty five minute act, and I'm on. It's it's like it's there's no better way way to work out your material in front of an audience like that, and you have all the time you need to do it. Wow, how much material would you say you have uh, or had throughout your your career? Could you even roughly put a number on that? <laughs> I can roughly put a number because I have tapes and. I did eight shows taped in San Diego improv Mark Anderson's place back in 91. And out of that, I got four 90 minute tapes of material. Wow. I thought was good enough for people to hear. So whatever that is, six hours, six hours of material, about six hours of material. Ninety ninety one. That's about what I had. Wow. And again, I cleaned my notebook. I mean, I cleaned out all the old stuff that I hadn't been doing for a while. You know how it is. You, yep. you, you bring in something, and you, all of a sudden you find, I'm no longer doing that joke anymore. Why? Because I outgrew it, or it no longer felt like it fit me, or whatever the reason. I just got bored with it. Mm -hmm. Or too many other comics started doing that material. You know, that that subject became played out by everybody. But at that time, at that week in San Diego, I, I have the tape still, and I have the the material, you know, I mean, it's like six hours of stuff that I got that was workable. I had eight shows that week or nine shows or whatever, but I narrowed it down. I still have the master tapes, but narrowed it down to like uh, six, six hours on four 90 minute cassette tapes. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It was, it was maniacal. Mark was hilarious. We were like every day he was with me working on it. Mark Anderson, every day we were going over the material, working on it, figure out what to do that night, every night. You know, okay, well, that one didn't go so good last night. That joke, I'm going to bring that one back tonight. But the other stuff is okay. I'm going to move on. 
you know, it, that was a, it was, that was a crazy week. Wow. That's, that's just insane. I mean, to have it all and to do it within one week is just a terrifying yeah, thought. A guy, guy named Walt Murray had uh, recorded it. He was like a, it was supposed to be a, a, a record company, but I, I, I think the record company folded just in well, for the whole <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so kind of switching back just through looking through your experience, what are some of the, uh, the biggest mistakes you see uh, new comics making? Or just comics in general? They don't have to be. Well, I think the two things we just talked about is is being lazy. They, they, you know, you, you, you it, 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 it seems like the job is just working an hour a night, mm. but that's just the show part of it. And getting ready for that show mentally, physically, getting ready for that hour, not giving yourself that prep, not writing new material. Those would be the biggest. Thing. Not going on stage enough, thinking that you know you're going to be okay three, four nights a a week, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with five minutes or 10 minutes at an open mic, that's not, that's not going to, that's not going to get you anywhere. But see, but a lot of people today, again, this is different. There were no amateurs. There were no hobbyists in our day. They couldn't right. get stage time in any of the clubs or any place. So you have a lot of hobbyists today. You have people who never intend to quit their day job. It used to be a heckle, you know, somebody to yell at the comedian, don't quit your day job. And now you yell that to a comic today, he's likely to go, I don't intend to. I got a good 401 <laughs> and uh, medical and dental. So there's no reason I'm quitting my day job. This is just for kicks. You know, you, you have that. So, um, but, but if you really, if this is your thing and, 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 and you burn with that fire to do it, I think those are the two areas that you, you, that I see people making the most mistakes. Otherwise there are no rules. If it's funny and it gets a laugh, it's funny. So you, you um you have been a part of some some really big uh franchises within uh just TV and and movies. Um how did uh how did things like um Roxanne and Married with Children uh come to you? Because you're out there doing it, you know. Again, doing those tonight shows. I did a bunch of tonight shows, Letterman, HBO special. It's it's a somebody once said um Somebody said, I just need a break. And I forget who it was. There was just a bunch of comics around. Somebody said, you need eight breaks. You need about eight breaks. And it's really totality. And there's, uh, there's very few overnight sensations. Stephen Wright, back in my day, he did like one Tonight Show in 1983 or something. Boom, he was gone. It, but that's a stupendous talent. That's a, that's a generational. He's a freak, man. I mean, he was so good. Mm. And what he was doing was so different. It just stood out. I mean, there was no denying it. But the rest of us, you know, the blue collar, lunch pail type of comics, you just got to make lots and lots of appearances and people notice you. You know, Tommy Smothers saw me on on a Tonight Show and they were going to do a, a replacement show and the Smothers Brothers and he called me up and said, I want you to write for our show. So I get my first paid writing gig for TV, you know, and it gets me into the Writers Guild. And, and and um, Steve Martin, I think, saw me saw a lot of comics um, uh, doing Tonight shows and other shows, and he hired us all to be in his movie Roxanne. And so Eddie, and again, Friends, it's a big thing, you know. The Friends, I probably got more work from Friends. I got a writing job writing on Mind and a Married Man because of a friend, Mike Binder, who was a stand-up comic when I first got to LA and met him, became friends with him. And then he became a director and a big writer and a director. And 
And so, you know, there you get jobs. Roseanne gave me my writing job at Roseanne on her show, you know, mm-hmm. because we work together. So your friends, Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, I knew him when we first started in New York. And so he put me in to uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Your friends that you come up with uh, give you so much work. I mean, it's really important. Those relationships are really important. Wow. Yeah. I, I, there's so many different topics I can, I can talk to you about. I kind of want to just kind of branch out a little bit. So what is the difference, would you say, between writing for a, a TV show um, versus doing stand-up? And then also, uh, I guess we could talk about, I know that you have written for some uh, comedians. You've written, um, helped work on specials and that sort of thing. What is, what is the kind of the difference, would you say, with those? Well, the TV show sitcoms is a whole nother script thing. Is all first of all, you're as a stand-up, you're everything. You're the writer, the star, the editor, the producer, the director, the costumer. You're everything. You make every decision. It's all it's all you. You don't have to consult with anybody if you want to. Somebody, it's good to have a manager or some some boyfriend, girlfriend, somebody, friends that give you advice. But I mean, you, you're 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 in control of the whole thing. And most stand-up comics, one of the reasons why we do this is because of that. We love that control. Then you go into um, sitcom writing. You know, I got that when I worked with Roseanne. It was my first real job writing. Uh, And you learn immediately, you know, you're part of the machine. In fact, when you first start, you're a very small and easily replaced part of the (laughs) machine. And so, uh, you know, you you have to just kind of get a whole other mindset, you know. And, And you're writing for... Again, characters on the show. So there used to be a comic, a great guy, um, and and we were writing on Roseanne, and he'd go, "That's funny." His name was Dave Tyree, very funny guy. And you and somebody would go, "Well, it's not really funny for that character." No, I'm telling you, it's funny. It's funny for you and your stand-up. Doesn't mean it's funny for that character. It's a hard transition. We all have to make that, and it's um, so that's a big difference right there. Is writing and and it's a it's a sort of similar thing to writing for the standups and I've, I've written for Roseanne. I was obviously a, a woman. So I had to get, you know, I try to do the best I can with that. But sometimes it's easy to write for, I write for Jeff Foxworthy or Jay Leno or somebody who's more, uh, uh, you know, in line with my, my comedic outlook or whatever it is. It's easy to write for him, Ron White or whoever. Um, it's different. So you just have to kind of, and, and they have to take what you say, you know, and Jeff Foxworth, they'll say, he, he'll laugh. He go, he had to take what I say, like, blah, 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 that Jersey gruff thing that I do and put it into, Hey folks, he put it into his <laughs> Southern draw and his attitude is a little different too. So he had to convert it. They all have to convert it to the way they do their, you can do the best you can to give them something that's kind of funny and you think is a good idea or joke or whatever. And then they, they have to edit and, and and transfigure the thing into their language right and their style but you know it's it's all i tell i tell you i get a kick out of you hear somebody do a joke that you've written it, it's not as much fun as doing a joke yourself but it's pretty close sometimes it's really a lot of fun yeah it's uh i've written for a few comedians too and then when you see it work you're just like this is again it's it's not as good as you it's but sometimes you know for yourself but it's like you said, it's right up there. And I, I always yeah, found it was just the hardest part is finding their voice. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, finding the voice. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so that's um I mean that so that's really good advice for for people but how does the uh on a on a higher level you know writing for you know like a foxworthy how does that how does that kind of work i sometimes there's ndas or non-disclosure agreements sometimes there's yeah I have some of those thing, some yeah. legal uh scenarios yeah, I have some of those and but jeff put me on his with two two gold albums that i wrote for him and he gave me gold records and they put me on the you know written by Jeff Foxworthy and Rich Scheidner. He's very generous, very generous. The, the pay is all sliding scales. You know, I don't, I don't have like the guys who can pay big money. You're charging big money because they're going to, my thing is like, if you're writing in like say an hour or whatever, they're going to make the money they pay you back in one night, one show. Mm -hmm. That's how much money these guys can make. So then they got that, that material for the next year or two until either they cut the special or they get bored of the material. It just depends. I wrote for singers, patter for singers, and some were like, wow, just it's the money was ridiculous how much they were giving me. And not I mean Kenny Rogers, I don't think he ever I don't think he ever even tried one of the jokes. He would he would have me perform them backstage at Las Vegas. You know, and he's he's having his pre-show meal and I afterwards I'd I'd do all this material and that I'd come out with once a week and he'd laugh. That's good. That's good. Then he'd go out and do the same stuff he's done a hundred years. <laughs> and I, and I'm getting big checks. I'm like, this is fantastic. I don't care. You know? That's great. Um, so do you have any uh, additional tips for um, aspiring comedic writers, maybe for like sitcom or, you know, other. Yeah. And look, this is also, again, you know, finding, if you can get hooked up with somebody who are a talent, you know, and, and, you got great ideas and they need a great idea. Now they've got some heat. If they need an idea for a sitcom or a movie or something and, and you can, you know, keep, I think you just got to keep writing all sorts of things. You know, you're writing sitcoms, movie scripts, obviously podcast ideas and stories and, and jokes. You're writing all the time. You, if you're going to be a writer, you have to like approach that the way to stand up as be on stage every night. You've got to come up with a lot of material and a lot of, and so, Go out there and hang out at these clubs and befriend these comics. And here's a joke that might work for you. Oh, really? Give them a joke. It's like a tease, right? Here's a joke. They, they're going to come back. That works. Hey, what else you got? Yeah. What else you got? Then you become friends, you know, because comics need writers. Every comic does. Anybody tells you is it the, 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 the big deceit now in, in stand-up comedy is that there are no writers for comics. And everybody knows if you're a popular comic, you can't write all that material yourself. You can't come up with it all yourself. You need help, but nobody wants to admit that anymore like they did 40, 50 years ago because the vogue is everything the comic says comes out of their mind. That's how it is now. And it's supposed to be conversational and it's personal to the comic. So nobody wants to admit that somebody else wrote a piece or whatever, but you know, that's they're needed. If you just want to be a writer, not say just, I don't mean, mean that because obviously someone like Judd Apatow became a great writer for other comics and then sketches and then shows and then movies and he's a great director so i'm just saying that that's what you want to do is be a writer more than a performer you still got to go out and meet the performers because you need to make those relationships yeah it seems like there's uh like you mentioned there's this stigma of having people write for you um that <laughs> you lose yeah. this you lose credit uh because you know you didn't come up with it yourself yeah, that's, that, that really started the, the Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul era back in the late 50s, early 60s. That's that's the era that changed that. Mm. Before that, everybody bragged about how many writers they had. 
you know, and so um, they changed that because it has to be conversational, and 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 it, the 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 game is that it looks like the comics just thinking of it, the top of the head, sort of like it, nah, you know, just thought of this idea, you know. In fact, the, the Vogue right now almost is like a non-performance style. Like I went out to get laughs. Our generation, you went out, and it was obvious we were performing to get laughs. But some comics today want to act like, you know, they just sort of like wandered out on the stage. Where is that chair? You know, I'll sit down. I'll talk to you a while. What are, you know, they just kind of like it's right. accidental performance, you know. It's uh, yeah, it's such a an interesting mindset because I'm always just kind of mine is just like a step on their throat mentality with jokes. Yeah, just hit yeah, them with yeah, joke, yeah. joke, joke, joke. And then you see people yeah. who are like, ah, I want to just sit back and tell my story and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to act like it's just you know I'll be here telling this thing, or I'll be over at the bar, or I'll be out in the car. And I just, just kind of, you know, we got a microphone there. Yeah, I guess I can talk into that. Well, and it's interesting because you're a great person to talk to uh, about this because one, you you've lived through so much of uh, the modern era of stand-up comedy, but you also have studied uh, the history of stand-up comedy. In fact, you put together a show. And we're traveling around the country uh, sure. talking about the history of comedy before the pandemic hit. Um, how did that kind of uh, get into to your your atmosphere sphere or whatever? Well, I was always you know ever, ever for years I was interested in it. Phyllis Diller, who was a great comic and the first female star stand up. I became friends with her, and we would talk about the history of it. And she was always pushing me to write a book and. And I wasn't sure who would, you know, nobody seemed to be, I did some book proposals. Nobody seemed to be interested in a book about the history of stand-up comedy. So I just started doing these stories and I found a through line, you know, what stand-up say, what it says about America, society at any particular time. We're the most reflective art form. You know, in real time, you can see the zeitgeist of America through stand-up comedy. The fears, the obsessions, everything is right there in, in stand-up comedy and and so I, I started looking at it that way, what the comics said and how what it said about America, and that became the show. Mm. And I enjoyed doing it. And it's funny. It's really funny. I get to tell the jokes. And I found jokes like from the first stand-up comic to whoever you want, Steve Martin, whoever. Uh, I found jokes that would work today, people, audiences today laugh at, and, uh, and stories which are really funny stories. So it, it, it's, it's, it's been a, a real thrill. I love doing it. I'm going to do it again once this thing lifts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess without um, giving away uh, too, too much, what did you, who did you find out was the first, who and when was the first stand-up comic? Just well, so they really, have frame reference. The, guy, the guy's name was Artemis Ward. Artemis <laughs> Ward. And I, I found him by, I thought Mark Twain was the first stand-up because I know he did these really funny lectures and after dinner speaking engagements where he just made the audience laugh. That's all he's up there to do, make them laugh. That's what it is. It's one person going on stage with the sole purpose of making the audience laugh. That's it. Wow. And, uh, and he wrote about the funniest guy he ever saw was this Artemis Ward. And uh, he, he started doing it in the Civil War. He started in 1861. Wow. Uh, and he was doing a parody of these lectures that were all over the country at the time, sort of like television or movies of the era. These lectures were always, you know, educational, uh, either a moral lesson or a flat out educational lesson. Here's the new continent of Africa. I'm going to talk about that. Or I'm going to talk about how drinking is bad or slavery is bad. And, uh, and he decided to go on stage and just sort of almost parody these lectures he wouldn't talk. He'd, he'd set a subject like 60 minutes in Africa was one of the he'd always have these titles he put on his shows, but he'd never refer to Africa or anything. 
until the very end. And he'd say something like after doing like an hour and a half, he's up there. He said, I'm going to try to make them laugh as hard as they can for as long as they can. That's, that was his whole purpose. That's every stand-up comedy since, right? Yeah. And he'd, he'd talk for like an hour, an hour and a half. And then at the end he'd go, Oh yeah, I haven't said anything about Africa. Well, let me tell you, Africa is a, a long way away. So if you're going to go, go, early so you have time to get back for work you know he did some skirt <laughs> stuff and then he did end it and but he was a funny funny guy and he became a big star he died um uh, early he was only he was only 32 years old um he was friends with lincoln uh he wow. he, uh, he befriended mark twain uh he was a big star and um completely lost in history but i love the guy I and mean, he was a wild guy he was what they called back then a lotus eater which <laughs> okay. meant he liked he liked his weed and hashish and uh and he was um but he died of um tuberculosis they didn't even know i don't even know if they called it then or not or maybe just started calling it when he died in 1867 um but he was a um uh, uh you know a lunger they used to call him consumption that's mm. what killed him. it's interesting because i i think if you were to ask most people even stand-ups who when was the first stand-up comedy most people would probably go lenny bruce when the first <laughs> you know and yeah, it's, then yeah. you sit there and you, you pull out yeah. you know artemis yeah. and uh 1861 and you're like whoa that's, that's yeah, yeah look, it, was a, it was a different thing there was no there, obviously there was no electronic amplification there were no electric spotlights but it was working and people loved it and 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 the lecture series circuit sort of died out and then it was just saloons and saloons were a terrible place stand-up comics didn't do well in saloons most uh, entertainment and saloons and these saloons back then were just all men and women who were um working the men so to speak so they were they were pretty much open air brothels, and and uh, so the most of the were teams comedy teams. Sort of term slapstick came from each other. They would just stand on stage mostly and just beat on each other with sticks and bats, and so that the audience wouldn't do it. You know, they would just pre preemptive strike on each other. They did a lot of slapstick, and then vaudeville came and comics started coming on a lot more and it became a a, a a a more settled audience mostly, and. Um, and then vaudeville started. Then, of course, all these things came along: electronic amplification, the microphone, and uh, but yeah, that's the modern era. When you start at the beginning, Lenny Bruce and Mort Sol and those guys, they changed it from uh, sort of like generic comics, just uh, your mother-in-law jokes are the same as my mother-in-law jokes, and mm -hmm. my wife's a bad driver, bad cook, the same as your wife's a bad driver, bad cook. To like, it became personal. It became an art form. They made it an art form. What the comics said mattered to him and to the audience and they changed it back then so that's the beginning to me of the modern era sure what i uh, and i got a chance to see uh your history uh, of stand-up comedy show and it was amazing and i thoroughly thoroughly loved it my, one of my favorite um tidbits about that that just made me kind of just blew my mind uh, no pun intended was where the term working blue comes from and for for people who don't know that means uh that you're you curse or you're you're dirty yeah. uh, as yeah. opposed to clean comedy can you just tell us about yeah, where that yeah. term so, so uh in vaudeville it was you had to work very clean in vaudeville and that they, they they wanted to get the families in and so children and women were there along the men and you couldn't say slob you couldn't say son of a gun uh, you had to work clean. So if you did something, some joke where you tried to get away with an innuendo or whatever, you know, uh, they would uh, put that material typewritten in a blue envelope and put that in your dressing room. And you better not do that material again. Uh, so that was called blue material. 
They got the color blue actually from England. In England, uh, the Queen's Exchequer, uh, who was the censor, royal censor, who censored every play, every performance done on stage in England, had to go through this censor, would strike out any objectionable material with blue pencil. So it, it might have been called blue material in England before it was actually called blue material in America. But it sort of just, uh, they took the same color scheme in vaudeville and it became blue, blue material. Wow. Yeah, that's such a, a cool story with that. I you're, mean, work, you have, you're working blue, you're working dirty. Yeah. And yeah. you have so many of them. Um, you ended up writing, uh, you, well, you did the uh, I, I Killed book, which was the compilation of road stories, which is yeah. a fantastic read. Uh, you also were featured in the documentary uh, I Am Comic which kind of chronicled your coming back into to comedy after a break. Yeah. And then you also have, um, this, I feel like a talk show host. You also have uh, Kicking Through the Ashes. Uh, it is my life as a stand-up uh, stand in the 80s uh, comedy boom. Um, and what I love about this, um, in addition to the, the book is fantastic, I, I will try to, to show it, but on the cover, you have several flyers with your name just, absolutely uh butchered yeah uh, we got all rich of, all the whole cover that's all the cover is, is all all my name butchered in a million different ways i should have should have had a different name from the beginning my name's actually spelled s-h-i-d-n-e-r i thought if i just changed the i to a y people could pronounce it from they would <laughs> give me shidner when i was growing up instead of Scheidner. i should have changed my name i had names when i first started i went with um, elvis de Groot was one of the names <laughs> i went with <laughs> and then I went with, uh, I also went with uh, Bud Lunch. Bud Lunch was one. <laughs> I should have gone any other, I could you know, if I just went Richie Allen, just took my first two names. But I don't know why I stuck yeah, with that name. My favorite is uh, Rich uh, Shy Diver. That's a good Shy name. Diver. That was Toronto, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my, favorite, my, my favorite on there is they put my name misspelled with Shirley Hempel's picture and Shirley Hempel <laughs> for anybody who knows is a very funny black female comedian of the 80s oh, yeah. and so it's, this it's, week it's, was it's, Shirley Hempel yeah there it is Dan Shirley Hempel's <laughs> picture with Rich Scheidner over here yeah. that's that's hysterical so um tell us a, a little bit about that book is it still available uh to yeah it's available people? on Amazon it's available on Amazon and uh you know uh, I got a lot of more stories that I didn't put in there, and maybe one day I'll kind of just do a second book. I don't know, um, but you uh, definitely, there's a lot of great, a lot of great stories in there. A lot of great stories, road stories, and stories about. And I put chapters in about different comics, of course, Bill Hicks or uh, my friend Mike McDonald from Canada, who was uh, um, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Sam Kennison. All had different chapters about these comics. Uh, who were either uh, friends of mine or, or also uh, very influential comics from that era. Hmm. Um, I guess one of the last questions we'll be wrapping up uh, uh, shortly is what, uh, what is it that you love about comedy that just keeps you coming back after all this time? It's that, that mystery, you know, you, you don't know how it's going to go when you get up there. It's something, anything could happen and you don't know, you know, I mean, once I was on stage one time in a, a car, just, bashed into the side of the building the whole thing shook you know you, you one time i was on stage and I'm, i've got caps you know and, and my front tooth up here just flew out of my mouth <laughs> and i caught it in midair and then i did you know 10 minutes on on a tooth out flying out of my mouth and the guy on front of the audience is the guy like look i got and he pulls his bridge you know <laughs> his teeth out he's too, and when the whole audience is 
pulling teeth out of their mouth. <laughs> you know, I didn't go on stage thinking this is going to happen, you know, but it, it was comedy in that moment and you never know what's going to happen. And it's, um, that's the fun of it, man. It's a live show is a live show. And, and I'm always open for that. You know, I, I can blast the material like any comic, I think, but I'm always looking for those moments, which are not being able to replicate. You know, the How do you, moments. Yeah, how do you handle that? How do you handle like an improv moment? Um, you just go with you, you, you. What I learned early on, and I used to love doing it. I opened up for rock band, so I had to be quick, and a lot of it was combative. But say the first thing that comes to your head. Don't censor yourself. I think that's what part of Robin Williams' genius was. I mean, he just didn't filter it, let it go. Now sometimes he that led to him doing other people's lines, but he was a very funny guy in his own right, and uh, and and his mind just was quick, and it. Mm. it and he was not holding it back, man. He just threw those reins up and said, go. And that's what you got to do with improv. You got to be the first thing you're on. The quickest, fastest, is funniest. Absolutely. He who hesitates is you're lost. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. I mean, how many times you walked away from a conversation and went, oh, I should have said that. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody has that. Well, Absolutely. You can't do that in improv. Improv, you got to be right, whatever it is. Just go with it. That's no, no social constructs, man. <laughs> Such good, such good advice. Um, and then I, I get one. I, one other question came up, and I, I always learn, wonder this because you were talking about, um, you know, that there's different types of comedians, and there's there's some backlash where uh, some comics will do uh, stuff just to kind of make people laugh and take away their issue, you know, more uh, corporate or or church, and then some people will go with the social commentary as opposed to just I'm just trying to give you an escape. Do you have any opinion on on that? Just whatever works for you. Whatever works, man. I mean, you you you. I'm I'm there to entertain that audience. You may entertain them differently than I can. Um, sometimes you have a private party. You got to sort of got to really know who your audience is if that's what you're there for. But other right. than that, you know, it's up to you. And I've seen comics, you know, different comics, completely different comics, able to take an audience one way and then 180 degrees, the next comic takes them completely the other direction. And then the next comic after that goes way back the other way. <laughs> comics are comic comedy audiences sometimes are kind of stiff and maybe, you know, they, they can't, they, they get to a flow and they don't, don't it's hard to go back. But some audiences mo uh, that I've seen, uh, they, they're very malleable and they'll go with you, you go with it, but you, you're always working within a parameter of what they, what their values are they, they, they as rodney dangerfield just used to say individually they may be orangutans but as a group they're genius, they're genius. <laughs> i mean they, they they're right they're right if it's funny and they're laughing if it's not funny they're not laughing yeah well uh i want to just get into this uh rich normally at this point we, we talk about a, a charity or a foundation or an organization and, and rich was uh very gracious enough to uh donate his time to me so I can pr uh, promote uh, a, yeah. an organization that I love. And that is the, uh, the facial paralysis and Bell's palsy foundation uh, there at uh, facialparalysisfoundation.org. And obviously uh, with my history of facial paralysis, this, this uh, organization has really uh, meant a lot to me and they put out a lot of research and um, they do a lot of uh, support groups online. They do in person, they do uh, research and, and funding. 
uh, for people and to just give a little bit of support for for when people are, are going through facial paralysis and feeling alone. So uh, I want to give them a quick shout out to Facial Paralysis and Bell's Palsy Foundation. Again, uh, if you need any support, facialparalysisfoundation.org. And uh, one more time, if you want to check out uh, Rich Scheidner, uh, his website is www.richrichscheidner.com. And uh, Rich, I can't thank you. And I could talk to you for, for hours yeah, about we'll comedy. We'll do it another time, Brian. We'll do it another time. My All right. Pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank and, you, man. Uh, thank you for everyone watching and tuning in. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.